even as a young kid, I was always thinking of big ambitions like wanted originally to become a lawyer because I wanted to defend people who were <laughs> oppressed. I saw it in an old slum book and I actually wrote ambition to <laughs> to defend the oppressed. <laughs> I, can't, I can't stop laughing at, oh my goodness. <laughs> so it was like a progression of that kind of ambition which I never reached because it's at the time we were really very poor and uh, they had a small business, but we were a family of eight siblings. Rufa is an academic, now retired, who focuses on political anthropology and the southern Philippines. She has a lot of publications in this regard, but alongside that, has delivered dozens of consultancies for international institutions that are trying to engage with peace and security in this region. Interestingly, she was also the editor-in-chief of the country's oldest Catholic newspaper, which is no small feat as a Muslim woman. So a lot to unpack here. How does a young woman from a large, not terribly well-off Catholic family find herself engaged so directly with these questions of interreligious and social dialogue? What is the role of someone with academic training and an academic position to help move forward on those issues? What did she see with her anthropologist's eyes when she encountered international institutions blundering around on this very complex terrain? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. If you meet someone socially, you know, at a, at a wedding, uh, a friend of a friend, how do you describe what you do for a living or as a yeah, profession? A little bit difficult because there are not many people <laughs> in in my country like me doing this kind of work. So yeah. I often just tell them that I, I'm a professor in a university and the things I taught is all about understanding different diverse cultures as an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And to make people realize that, you know, like the world is composed of diverse populations. And even in one country, you will see differences of culture and ways of life and religion. And then they can sort of already understand that. It's, uh, social sciences is a little bit diffi- difficult to describe than the, the, the natural sciences. Even my own siblings, they would say something isn't that something nebulous for us to understand <laughs> you know like <laughs> because <laughs> understanding cultures of uh, different parts of the world and they were saying huh why do you have to to do that <laughs> so <laughs> even my mother before said what what are you <laughs> what are you studying <laughs> I get that from my parents too sometimes. <laughs> it's okay. It's very difficult because I come from a small city in the central part of the Philippines. Mm. I wasn't born a Moro or a Muslim. Mm. So I was born into a very strict Catholic uh, you know, family, very, very strict about traditions of both the church and both the local Filipino version of Catholicism and I mean, when I started talking about different cultures in other parts of the country and said, huh, where did you get that idea? I mean, you know, you, you were born here, live here, get married here and die here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't want that kind of life. So, so I had to, but I had to uh, prove to them that this was a profession that is equally important with the others mm. and I think uh, they realized too late because my parents are both dead and then my siblings realized that after seeing me in uh, uh, being interviewed on TV on national TV and on uh, writing and seeing my name in some articles or uh, in a book or or now I write a regular column for a big 
broadsheet like the Philippine Daily Inquirer. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have a column every fortnight. So now they see uh, why I am here. <laughs> why I've gone this path, which nobody in my family took. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of difficult, especially if the people I I meet are, you know, like engineers or all these people who have concrete, like, you know, like nurse or things like that. Yeah. So you have to explain. Indeed. <laughs> But it's a bit, um, I mean, that's that's hard enough. But then uh, beyond being an anthropologist, uh, you have come to focus uh, largely on peace and conflict issues, um, uh, ex- extremism issues recently, I think. Could you? Yeah, I think the evolution of that uh, interest started way back when I was, uh, I started to stay in Mindanao mm-hmm. because I was with a group. They had a program for interreligious dialogue, and I was very curious about the program because I was seeing a lot of, you know, like signs of conflict in very many parts uh, in many parts of the region, and uh, uh, they they started in the in the late 70s as still within martial law, and a lot of people were being incarcerated and. And they had a program called Do You Ramadan, which that means accompanying Ramadan. There's a group of Christians uh, accompanying uh, their counterpart Muslims and fasting with them during the month of Ramadan, even if they're Christians, they, you know, so mm-hmm. that they can see the value of the exercise of fasting. And uh, during Christmas, this group of Muslims also go to the Christian homes to stay with them to with the holidays. It opened my eyes that this is possible in a region that has seen so much bloodshed, and the bloodshed has been attributed to, you know, incon- irreconcilable differences between Muslims and Christians. Mm. And so I got interested in it and. Since I was also doing anthropology work at the time, I decided to focus my work, uh, my whole lifetime uh, subject matter for my anthropological studies would be looking at the culture of a certain uh, Moro group, the Maguindanaons in Cotabato. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I started my career uh, doing work. Originally, because I was, I had two undergraduate majors in in college i was an english major and also looking at high school secondary education they wanted to teach but so uh my anthropological uh studies was also uh were also influenced by my literary background because i used to write uh poems and other literary forms when I was younger in high school and in college mm-hmm. and so um so my first uh, att- uh my first graduate paper was on folklore which was for me it was a marriage between my interest in literature mm. and in anthropology and understand and looking at folklore as a mirror for an outsider to learn the culture of a particular group here uh, in, in Mindanao. So uh, from there, because I immersed myself in in the daily lives of the people, I saw a lot of problems with them. And if there was always like time for them to evacuate because of some skirmishes in some parts of the community and they have to evacuate. And in fact, I actually... Uh, got married to a Maguindanaon too, and I saw how their family, his siblings, my husband's siblings, have been evacuating since they were, you know, like toddlers, mm. up until the time that they became adults. Mm. And even as a young kid, I was always uh, thinking of big ambitions like, wanted originally to become a lawyer because I wanted to defend people who were <laughs> oppressed. I saw it in an old slum book and I actually wrote ambition to <laughs> to defend the oppressed. And I, just, <laughs> I, can't, I can't stop laughing at 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it was like a progression of that kind of ambition which yeah. I never I never reached because my parents didn't want me to go through the it's at the time we were really very poor and uh, they had a small business but we were a family of eight siblings. Yeah. So it was really a struggle for both my my parents are not highly educated. They were like high school graduates. Mm. And so, and that's why they cannot understand the kind of interest I had. They're interested in things that are concrete, like food, like money and things like that. You see, we were poor. And they cannot understand why I'm reading books like books of Tayar de Chardin, for example. <laughs> why? <laughs> Where did you get that book? Because <laughs> at an early age, I was, you know, picking up reading already. I didn't also understand why. I didn't have an atmosphere that yeah. that allowed, uh, that became like some kind of an enabling environment for the kind of things I want to do. But so... Uh, I had long arguments with my parents about that, of course. They couldn't understand. So, like when I was transported to Mindanao, and the reason for that also was to escape from the kind of atmosphere I had in my province. Mm. For me, it was like uh, very constricting to be defined by the kind of family you were. But I I was thinking of another trajectory, which I I didn't... no, yet, but I didn't want, I was like thinking, I can't be <laughs> just doing the same things that my parents, my grandparents, or even my relatives are doing. I want something different. So, You've done something I different. Cons- <laughs> <laughs> so I conspired with a friend of mine to be able to come to Mindanao. <laughs> yeah. uh, actually, I really... I mean, it was bad, I think, because we had to tell some kind of a lie mm. that we were accepted to a certain school to teach there in Mindanao. It's a very far place in Mindanao, but uh, the farther, for me, the farther the place, the more attractive it was for mm. me. So uh, I finished my two undergraduate degrees when I was still 19 or late 19 years old so Mm. I really I didn't want to stay any minute longer in my province in my small province I wanted to to search for more you know adventure I think so so the more I was told that Mindanao was like a crazy place to move in the more I was pushed to to go Uh, I had I had a friend who worked in a telecommunications company there was no text yet at the time but the telegram so uh, I conspired with him to to write a fake telegram <laughs> I'm shocked <laughs> it's so crazy <laughs> a fake telegram uh, telling me that I got accepted to a certain school <laughs> but I had a friend with me to go with me so I wasn't scared it was yeah. really an adventure because for the whole of my life, up to I graduated in college, I never went out of my province. So it was like, I need to to go somewhere. I carved my own identity, you know. I couldn't define myself at that time yet. I couldn't define what I wanted, but there was something telling me that I don't belong to the province where I was born. <laughs> So I had to resort to to that conspiracy of sorts with my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, my parents found out later on. Of course, yes. <laughs> Probably wasn't a very because, sustainable life. <laughs> because, of course, because when we arrived, we didn't, we really didn't get accepted. So we had to find a job. Yes, it's the kind of lie and, that requires a lot of additional lies. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's really but I think I was I was on the correct trajectory. It's in, in the university where I taught before in Notre Dame it's called Notre Dame University in Cotabato City. Mm-hmm. There was a Korean guy who introduced uh 
peace studies, but it was also at the time when I got a scholarship to study at the University of Hawaii for my uh, advanced course, my uh, postgraduate. So having been aware of that discipline, I was doing my own reading about it. And so when I went to Honolulu for my for my East West Center scholarship, I decided to focus not only on anthropology but also on political economy leanings of anthropology as mm-hmm. well as ecology. All the more I was exploring, you know, how to put my interest and my new skills in anthropological research mm. to to do something for peace and conflict. And also because I have this um I think deep inside I was a gender a gender person already. I mean looking at the dynamics of gender relations because uh when I was growing up as a toddler I my it was my grandmother who raised me actually. Mm. Uh, so she, I think she was the most empowered woman I have ever, you know, like come to live with. When my husband came to ask for my hand in marriage, uh, he, uh, she said, she asked him, do you believe in God? <laughs> you know, when, when I first brought up the idea of marrying a Muslim, my mother was, you know, mm. went ballistic. No, <laughs> was not impressed, yeah. Yes, he said, how can you marry someone, blah, blah, blah. She said, uh, what? there are Catholics here. Aren't they good enough for you, you know? There's plenty of Catholics, it's true. <laughs> so, but it was my grandmother who said, look, I mean, once religion does not, it's, they, he believes in God, that's good enough for me. Mm. He has a holy book, good enough for me. Mm. What's your problem? She was asking my mother. <laughs> What's your problem? <laughs> good on <laughs> she said, She's old enough to get married, so why are you? So yeah. anyway, so maybe all those things uh, work together to to come up with a conviction on my part that I I take this trajectory in my career. I I couldn't have done it. Uh, I couldn't have. Uh, made definitive the career on peace and conflict if I was not given opportunities also to to see how valuable it was for mm. looking at the social dynamics in the world in the place where I was working. Yeah, this is sort of a intention, I guess, or an interest. Um, how did you come to be engaged in a very practical sense? What was sort of the first foray, if you will, um, into more of a practitioner role? You described yourself as an academic. You've also done an awful lot yes, of um, yes. practical uh, work. I was an academic then. Yeah. After I got, I gave birth to my second child, she was still an infant at that time. And then I stopped teaching. I was uh, doing like freelance a research work for some agencies. Right. Then the there was this Catholic congregational order. It's called the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. They are missionaries. Mm-hmm. They yeah. opened the first uh, media conglomerate in the city where I worked. They had a radio station and they had a newspaper. And the newspaper has been there the longest. I mean, for a community paper that had uh, regional reach, it was like, I think it was the pioneer because it was established in 1948. Mm. And then uh, when they were looking for an editor-in-chief, my name cropped up, but they were having, you know, like a debate because I had two problems, quote-unquote. Number one, uh, I am a woman. Oh, well. <laughs> number two, I'm Muslim. <laughs> so I had two, yeah, two I had two barriers. <laughs> From 1948 up to the time I joined the paper, I was the first woman then because mm. all the editors were priests. 
because the that paper used to be an instrument for evangelization, right. but it evolved into a community paper. Then they really badly needed an editor in chief, the kind that would also ensure that it will make their paper afloat because they were experiencing they were about to become bankrupt at that time. Right. <laughs> because the the priests who were supervising the editorial staff did not know anything about running the business. And my husband was the one who said, look, don't you feel honored that among all people they consider for editor-in-chief, editor you are the one they are pursuing? So maybe they have seen something in you that, and maybe the Muslim population in the city will start reading it seriously. Because the name of the paper is uh, very, very Catholic, the Mindanao Cross. <laughs> yes, that is uh, <laughs> that is quite Catholic. How can how can you be not Catholic with that name? <laughs> so anyway, uh, so my husband said, "Why don't you do that? You are interested in because both of us are are products of interreligious dialogue, and that's why I think that's why we met. My husband and I yeah. met in that interreligious dialogue yeah. and." And so it became even more uh, meaningful for me to engage in daily dialogue, you know, like mm -hmm. I call it dialogue of life. And my husband said, why don't you take it up? I don't think it might be that bad. So just, you know, give it a try. So, mm. so I did. When <laughs> <laughs> you were there, was it four or five years, I think? What did you... Five years, yeah. yeah what did you take years. away from that? So what's your... Oh, a lot it was like operationalizing my life of dialogue. My I, being the only Muslim in a staff of Catholics and also a woman at that, and I am their head of office. It was like having dialogue every day. It was not easy because my staff, many of them, wanted to become editor in chief. They have been there for a long time, yeah. and when I was plucked from the outside to become their chief, they were a little bit you know, uh, disappointed that they didn't make it. I mean, they, they resorted to so many, <laughs> to so many strategies to try to boot me out. Mm. <laughs> but of course, the, the, the more they did that, the more I, I tried to show to them. <laughs> I wouldn't like to, to be defeated in that kind of situation mm. where I feel that I I I would be bringing more value added to the paper uh mm. because of the kind of background that I have because I was also a mentoring kind of editor. One of my big takeaways is that some of the reporters I trained, I see them now and they will always recall those days that I trained them like that and they send messages when I'm featured on, like, I'm inter being interviewed on TV and they would give a comment in in my wall that, oh, mom was my mentor, mom Rufa was my mentor. So I, that's one of the things that make me even work harder for, you know, training the young mm. to do the kind of things I do. For me, that's, gratifying that's something i cannot i cannot buy so mm. money i called it having higher sins for my soul i mean it's something something that that makes me feel that I've, i have been doing something something useful mm. maybe not not that great yet but it's useful mm. in terms of the you mentioned the social mission, if you will, of, of a newspaper and particularly mm. in that uh, religiously, I don't know if polarized is the right word, but certainly religiously mm. plural mm. context. Mm. Did you, was that sort of a, a first uh, effort at creating dialogue at that sort of social level? I mean, in, in an editorial sense, uh, did you? Yes, uh, there things? were many occasions where I pushed not only interreligious dialogue, but also about understanding gender dynamics. 
there was a time when I republished, there was an article about this woman who was blind, who was raped by her uncle in Pakistan. And instead of the uncle being punished for illicit sex, it was she was punished uh, for uh, zina in Arabic, is uh, sex outside of yeah. marriage. You remember that? I yeah. mean, yeah, I remember. I remember, uh, I remember the story. Yeah, and then she was lashed a hundred times, and she was blind for God's sake. So mm. I couldn't help but put it out and write a commentary about it in my because aside from writing the editorial, I was also having a regular column in that in that newspaper. Mm. I don't know if it was coincidence. There was an incident where a, a woman, a married woman, was raped. And she was not only raped, she was killed. And it was so gory. And so I couldn't help write about it. That was before uh, the national government passed a law about husbands raping their wives, forcing them to have sex, even if the wives do not want to have sex. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote about that and critiqued, you know, the the predominant stereotypes, you know, like uh, women usually give the motives for for the men to rape them. <laughs> so, so I think that was the first time that they read someone like me articulating my, my, uh, <laughs> I was so deeply <laughs> angered by by those stereotypes, so I had to write it down. I can remember that one of my last lines was, was she rapable, you know, I invented <laughs> rapable <laughs> to to question yeah. why they put the blame on the woman. And so, do you know what happened after that? Uh, a very conservative imam, I went to my husband and told him, please tell your wife. <laughs> Not to write <laughs> things like that. It's not Islamic. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you can laugh about it now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm laughing about it now because at that time uh, my husband was worried because it's not only that. I was also writing uh, against very uh, controversial things like corruption in the regional government. So there was a series of investigative reports about a regional official using public funds for the parties he threw for his friends. And we had evidences of that, paper trails and things like that. And so we decided to to put it out as a series. Every now and then the, a SWAT team would inspect our office for bombs. Every day I get these threat letters. I should behave or they will do something. So there was one time a mayor who is now dead, who's part of the Ampatuan clan. I'm sure you have heard of that, mm -hmm. the Ampatuan massacre in 2009. Mm -hmm. One of his sons used to be mayor and used to be my husband's student. But he, he went to my, to my office to complain about a news item. And his bodyguards were all over me with their armor lights. <laughs> so I get, <laughs> I get things like that. <laughs> but I had, my, my reporters were so scared because I scolded one of his bodyguards because he was smoking inside my <laughs> office. And there's a big no smoking sign. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I had to call her his attention. I said, well, <laughs> Yes, and they were all scared that a guy would fire, you know, <laughs> would fire his armor light at us. I said, no, he wouldn't dare do that. It's a broad daylight. Yes, <laughs> passive passive smoking, on the other hand, now that's dangerous. <laughs> it is. No, I told them so. Because <laughs> my office was very small and it was air conditioned, so yes. you get all the fumes from the cigarette smoke. So. Anyway, so I have, you know, like those brushes that yeah. because the the reality in in Maguindanao and other Bangsamoro societies is that when a member of the family gets hurt and they exact revenge on the ones they believe who did the crime, mm. and so the whole thing spirals into episodes of violence. And this is the communal conflict that 
exist alongside the vertical ones. So I told my my husband's relatives, just take it easy. Don't worry about me. If well, if it's unfortunate that I get killed, there's only one way you do. You can just bury me. That's all, and inform my parents I died. That's all. Forget <laughs> about sure, it. I'm sure that made everyone feel better. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very reassuring. They were even more scared. So how can you? How can you say that? So well. Well, that's the only thing you can say. What can you say, you know, mm. if you get also... So I had to appear in court two or three times for this libel case. They joke about it, that I was the first woman editor and I was also the best-dressed editor for the libel suits against me. <laughs> so I said, well, that's something to be proud about. <laughs> At least I'm not the praise release type of editor, I told him. It's sort of an exhausting, difficult job, no? And then because of that, I had to, I had to resign because mm. my doctor, because I wanted to have another baby and I couldn't have one. I had two miscarriages while I was editor in chief because yeah. it was so stressful and I didn't realize that it was like affecting my whole reproductive system already so my doctor said you want to have another baby stop mm. go back to university and teach <laughs> so that's why i stopped in 1995 well, of course the priests did not at first said you just take a leave and then go back for the time that i was there i put the paper really above the red line so they were really enjoying a lot because I attracted some people who, who realized that the paper was not only for the Catholics. So a lot, we had a lot of inscriptions from Muslim families. That's the kind of thing that made me happy about that, even if it was exhausting, because even if, you know, it was a backbreaking job doing like two issues in a week, for a community paper, that was quite tough. And there were times, you know, when you are a community paper editor, mm. when your reporters are not there and there are big events or big incidents, you, you have to yourself. be the one to, yeah. yeah, you even become a photojournalist. Also. <laughs> <laughs> it was difficult, but uh, I was younger then, so it was easier. <laughs> you had a, <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it sounds exhausting, frankly. Interesting, but exhausting. Yeah. So you went back to... Academia. So university, yeah, yes. I went back. But uh, only for a time. What happened was my husband was transferred to the city where we are living now. Mm -hmm. So I decided to resign from my job at the university in Cotabato to be in the university where I resigned, in Mindanao State University in General Santos, to be with my husband So because we, our children were still very young at the time. I resigned in March, and the school year begins in June. So there was a hiatus of about two months. During that time, someone, a friend of mine who was tapped as a consultant for the U first UN multi-donor program in, in the Philippines yeah. after the signing of the first peace agreement in 1996. The UNDP was the one who, who organized a team of consultants to assist the MNLF with the peace and development communities. So I had no work for two months. That was I, what I thought. So I said, wow, I have a vacation. But suddenly somebody called. A friend of mine said, Rufa, we need you. We Can you be part of the team? I said, what, what's the team? So we're going to work for UNDP for, to assist the MNLF with their development programs. I said, okay. So I asked for the terms of preference, everything like that, and I said, and I said, what? And then what will we do as consultants? So it's the first thing we we planned to do was to do a needs assessment of the MNLF combatants, mm -hmm. where then, you know, like, they, there was no decommissioning then, but there was like a way of uh, starting the normalization, but so we were asked to do, to help the MNLF try to understand what their needs were. And um, so that's how I started after after the first multi-donor program finished. 
I, I moved on to other consultancies as well. And so there were like, there were assessments for conflict affected communities by World Bank. So we had a joint group of World Bank, UNDP. And, uh, so again, I was tapped to do, to do that for, for the World Bank. And that's why I'm very deeply <laughs> involved in many, in many programs and projects in this part of the Philippines in Mindanao. So. And can I ask you, when you had been at that stage editing a newspaper, you trained as an anthropologist, um, mm. had done some sort of interreligious dialogue mm. stuff, and you encounter sort of international organizations uh, yes. working in the Philippines, working on peace building or, or, and or development. What were your initial impressions at that stage, coming into that quite different organizational oh, setting? Oh, it was also like the same way that I had to navigate through different perspectives when I was a journalist. I also had to do a lot of navigating between donor agencies, yeah. the MNLF, and there was another party, the NEDA, the National Economic Development Authority, Hmm. that uh, sort of acted like an oversight for development programs. And to be honest about it, I, for me, it was the most challenging thing because it's easy to be talking to ordinary people on the ground. It's more difficult to be navigating between two bureaucracies, which had... <laughs> I can see you already smirking. <laughs> you, well, you'll get no argument from me. <laughs> I had to navigate through the bureaucracies of UNDP vis-a-vis the bureaucracies of the government, yep. plus the kind of hierarchical structure in the MNLF that gave rise to the, they call it multi-donor, uh, tripartite. And of course, you know that in a tripartite kind of thing, the one who holds the purse <laughs> is the one who makes the decisions. <laughs> and the first hurdle we had to do, especially for the MNLF, who were clueless about how all these development projects happen or processes take place, and to explain to them in not only layman's language, but even lower than that kind of language for yeah. them to understand. So, for example, accountability of the funds that they get. For them, it was like, you know, they signed an agreement and they thought that it was like they were entitled to all the money that they were receiving mm. without doing any report about how they spent it. So that's the first hurdle. That, and also at the same time to make people understand that the four of us in the consulting team for the UN multi-donor program, each of us has, had our own like specialization. One was... Uh, you know, like a historian looking at the histories of the conflict and things like that. One was a sociologist, I was an anthropologist, the other one was an economist. And we were put together to help advise the 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 MNLF, create their own organizations as a cooperative, how to go about it and things like that. During the first first phase, which was the needs assessment phase, I, I told my colleagues, look, in graduate school, it's easy for us to talk about indicators and do a sampling, for example. But we cannot talk to them in this language. We have to throw everything we learn in graduate school to the window because you cannot talk to these people who have only learned like warfare in 20 years of their lives. So it was a challenge already in that sense because of the four of us in the consulting team, the, the three of us were academics. Only one was like a co-op guy, so he was more NGO. And the other things that, there are things that accountability requires, and this is something new for them. Well, of course, if there were rebels and they, when they were given money to buy a handgun or a, a, far, a long firearm, they will not be issuing receipts for that. <laughs> so, so it was quite difficult because we had to deal also with the idea of entitlement. Mm. The MNLF thought, oh, this project of UNDP was made possible because of us. So you have to give us all the money, you know? So it was really difficult 
but we were able to survive. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we had like, there were some rough moments like when we were holding a workshop and an MNLF commander would like all his 10 bodyguards to stay in the hotel. So you can imagine. <laughs> My secretary used, I'm Rufa, I'm so scared. <laughs> because at that time, there were no stringent rules of not bearing firearms inside the hotel room. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, at that time, it was okay. So it it took a long time. And even until now, I'm hearing from new UNDP people who are, I mean, very young UNDP people who are doing... People I talk to, they will say, oh, you know, this MNLF is so hard-headed. They, they, they want to get more than what is what is supposed to be given to them they can't understand that it, this is this is money that has to be rationally used because this is not just plucked out of nowhere one of the things that is obviously very striking about the philippines is that this has been going on a long time um and depending yes. on when you start counting at least 20 years maybe more <laughs> it's more it's more and uh, some of my colleagues, you know, they've already gone tired. Like, they're telling me, Mam Rufa, are you still there? <laughs> I always tell them that, you know, the work for peace is something that has no terminal phase. It's like working on a relationship. I always tell them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my husband always talks about it as, you don't have maximum tolerance of each other. <laughs> you can't. That's when he's asked, what's the secret that you're, you've been married for 36 years? So he said, one, uh, one phrase, maximum tolerance. <laughs> 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 but really, I, I, when people sign peace agreements, that, that's not a guarantee that there's going to be peace. Yeah. You know, we've seen uh, other peace contexts in other parts of the world. I mean, I mean, you have to realize that, first of all, you have to address some things that go very deep. Mm. And it will not work if you only think that a three-year development program will solve everything. No, it won't. It will be much longer than three years. So much longer than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Because there are new things cropping up, like, the first peace agreement, we realized that it was the Tripoli Agreement, the first Tripoli Agreement in 1976, that it was an agreement that started the whole thing on the wrong foot and for the wrong reasons. And that has seemed to be replicated in present-day negotiations, even with the BOL, with the Bangsamoro Organic Law. We consider that a severely mangled version of the original BT- BBL, mm-hmm. but there's no way not to accept it because, uh, as our MILF likes to say, our hands are tied. So if they don't accept it as part of uh, something that will start the process, still unsure of what its outcome will be, but at least there's something to hold on to. That's what they're saying now. Mm-hmm. I mean... You cannot reject it because it's part of this whole process. Although you know how how government has mangled it, has totally... Uh, for me, I'm sorry to say that government has really, really uh, outsmarted them at every step of the way. Mm. I mean, the, MLF, the MNLF, the MLF has have bent over backwards. And then it's exasperating because you have worked hard, you know, like in the sidelines. You're not in the forefront, but you are in the sidelines making people understand Mm. the rationalization of this process. When it was a failure of both government and the rebel groups to, to educate their constituencies, their respective constituencies, about the need for this process to take place. Can I ask, um, I'll make an observation actually, it's slightly sort of counterintuitive in a way, and that's to hear an anthropologist um, <laughs> describing this sort of very track one process, right? Mm. Where the it's the MNLF and the government who are the, 
the protagonists. Did you want to comment a bit on how other perspectives have or haven't been drawn into that process? For one, I think there was a huge failure in bringing the perspective, on-the-ground perspectives and the perspectives of the top. There's a failure of the middle, middle track to bring together the grounded perspectives with track one perspectives. Mm-hmm. And that's where the failure of academe like come in because the academe has for the whole time that this has happened has been largely passive and apathetic. I mean, I, I argue with my colleagues in the university about the need to get out more, get involved. But they say, why should we be involved? No. We are peaceful here. And I cannot also blame them because for a long time, they've stuck to the positions of power in the four walls of their classroom as the powerful individuals there. And then suddenly they go down and do research in life-threatening environments in conflict-affected areas. I cannot blame them. And when I say... No, I've been doing that for years. Nothing has happened to me. And they said, oh, it's different with you because people know you. You are a Muslim and, uh, you know, all those things that Mm. don't really matter if and when you decide to take that plunge to, to do work in the communities. But they chose not to. They will always say that it's the kind of things you do are not for the faint of heart like us. So, so count us out. So you have an academic sector who are supposed to have a multiplier effect that could mean so much power in terms of influencing opinion, Mm. influencing perspectives, changing mindsets. But that has not been tapped maximally, I think, because largely academe has decided not to get involved. But it's also because the parties involved, especially track one, has not also tapped into this very valuable resource. It's only now, for example, uh, someone like Miriam Coronel Ferrer became the chief of the negotiation party for the Philippine government. Of course, she was changed after the new president took office. So that could have been... For me, that was a pivotal opportunity to start engaging university people like academics, uh, well-thinking academics. I mean, deep in their hearts, they would like to understand the conflict better, but don't because either they refuse to, to read more, refuse to listen more, or just they're plain prejudiced. And... The prejudice could have been could have been addressed by um, people uh, undertaking a peace education program, mm. a very rationalized one, not a propaganda type of peace education. <laughs> so that I think was an opportunity missed, and I feel bad that I'm also part of that because I I did not push hard enough, or I did not have the means because like. I'm in the academic organizational structure. I'm only middle management and I don't make decisions. I was dean for my college or I was director for a small office, but I couldn't change the mind of the chancellor. It's usually a political... The selection of chancellors has has become political, especially now. Mm, (laughs) I I I can imagine, yes. Yes! Of course, what can you expect? What kind of leadership, especially in doing research and extension? It will be all research and extension for uh, filling up their pockets with money mm-hmm. rather than looking at what's, what's the kind of help that you as an academic, as a multiplier institution can extend to make society a better place to live in, to make uh, it more peaceful, to change people's mindsets. I'm always having a dream that if the thought leaders from the grassroots can meet up with the theories and cognitive leaders of the academe, 
and learn from each other. Now, you have the thought leaders who are praxis-based from the ground, the communities on the ground. They have learned a lot. They have done a lot. But these things have learned a lot. They never are elevated to something that uh, university students can learn from, you know? Mm. I mean, to multiply that kind of learning that will spell like changing mindsets for inter intergenerational prejudice. They're now starting peace education that they hope to be synchronized in different universities in the Philippines. But I think it's simply because they are forced to do it. And so you just teach it as a, a science subject, you know, like a content or skill. But it's more than that. It means your heart is also in it. Because if you're not peaceful with yourself, then how can you become a peace educator? On the cognitive level, yes. But on the practical level, then you'd be... But a lot of people are, you know, like... We, there was an international conference beginning of this year, early this year, on uh, Philippine Political Science Association, and they made it into like an international conference. And I was in the plenary as uh, one of the speakers, and I was asked about the role of the academe, and I precisely this was my idea, like in the whole government structure as it is in the present under President Duterte, we can no longer find a niche for critical thinking because everyone has become subservient for fear of opposing the president. You already have an acquiescent Congress bowing to ev everything that he likes. Mm -hmm. And now you have a Supreme Court that's also following what he wants to happen. So... Where will you go when you can't anymore have the three independent bodies of government to check on each other? Mm. So I said, that should be the task of the academe. That should be the task of the classroom teacher. That should be the task of people who are molding people's minds to make teaching based on critical thinking rather than rote memory. Also look at civic consciousness more to ask yourself, whether, I mean, you have a president who thinks in this way, is that the kind of leadership you want? I mean, right now, I mean, my columns speak for the kind of thinking that I have about this presidency. So that's my contribution to make people critically think about what's happening now instead of just following, instead of just blindly. So that's the task of the classroom to bring together a group of people who will make the change that we need. It's right now, it's still people are still apathetic. Like for example, we have this something happened in Congress, a shameless takeover of the speaker's post, and uh, we're seeing the consequences of that now. And yet, you know what happened on Facebook and other social media media platforms? You just see. A lot of memes and a lot of funny, you know, like even puns yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, wow, uh, instead of expressing a collective rage, you know, like a rational kind of rage, because my God, we're subjected to this kind of leadership. Of course, we don't like the previous speaker, but it doesn't mean that uh, anyone can just shamelessly remove him, you yeah. know? I mean... We need to make people understand that this is something that we should press collectively as a nation or mm. nations, but that hasn't happened. So people are saying, no, Rufa, the tipping point has not happened yet. I said, when will <laughs> when the will tipping point be? <laughs> when we all die? <laughs> so it's yeah. crazy that we have this kind of, this kind of reaction. Yeah. Uh, people were laughing about it, you know, making caricatures about it. But In the national political situation, um, so mm. it brings me to the last thing that I wanted to um, yeah. ask you about, okay. which is the process sort of in the southern Philippines has, you know, been very long and will continue. But the national political developments obviously can outweigh or overshadow or really sort of negate yeah. progress in I any, in any right. particular yeah. area. So I'm, I'm just wondering, when you look back over 
depending on how you count again, sort of 20, 30 years involvement your whole life, really. What sort of stands out as what was important or most useful in the long run? You've done, I don't know how many sort of bits of consulting work, (laughs) too many to to recap. (laughs) You've written a lot (laughs) of articles, too many to recap. But, you know, from that long run view, what seems like it has stood the test of time a bit or or was the right were the right issues to be focused on i think when when it's really the people who are made to craft their own plans of how they're going to develop people are grateful for the international donors and things like that but i start out with the first type donor program that I was involved, heavily involved in and I was always arguing with UNDP about the kind of, you know, structured, you know, like you cannot do this, cannot do that. There are certain uh, <laughs> bureaucratic dictates or what I call donors masts that have to go down to look at what the partner community communities need because most of the time it these do not meet what the donors want and what the partners need so what happens is that the partners have to become like in a way from the standpoint of the donor agencies are wily and scheming because they have to adjust to some things they were not used to do before for example, the first argument I had with some UNDP people, why do they have to be organized as cooperatives? I mean, is that because the cooperatives is the trend at that time? I mean, there were many cooperatives and it died. Right now, there's no, ex- except for one or two. From those days, those years, so much money has been given to them, but it didn't work. It's mm. maybe because it's, it's not the way first you have to look at the skill set for example they had a series of livelihood skills training but there was no matching market and distribution support and a capital to start a business and it's repeated at present so now there's a concept of social entrepreneurship and I hope it will succeed this time but that has been my my lament from way back. Because I really feel that donors say one thing but do another thing. Can you feel that? Can you see that? <laughs> Can you elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> a little. For example, they start out by saying, uh, we put the partners in the driver's seat. Okay. So how do you operationalize making them on the driver's seat? If you are not giving them the map, <laughs> the directions, you have to realize that coming out from 20, 30 years of warfare, you cannot ex- expect them to be following uh, normal, organizational, bureaucratic. I'm not condoning what they're doing, but I'm saying that there must be a way of making them account for it without going through like the nitty-gritty of UN bureaucratic accounting and procurement, things like that. Because if if the conflict starts with the lack of trust, then you are already creating another conflict because you don't trust them. I mean, you are looking at them as a pos- as possibly cheating in the reports. I remember that I started writing about <laughs> the road to heaven is littered with devilish details, the details about, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, like the things that people have to do for a certain, you know, like project. So, and I, I think it brings me to this point about what were the points that I usually raise having worked with the international donor community as a consultant and now as an evaluator, I'm seeing that in multi-component projects, one of the biggest flaws that they had in the past was they didn't speak to each other. I mean, 
they didn't have a platform for exchanging lessons from their different interventions. Even if there was a project coordinating committee, there was just a meeting updating of what happened in one project, but there was no opportunity for each of them to have a common platform for sharing what they will learn from this so that you will not do that in your own component. And it's sad that there was no structure. On paper, there was supposed to be a very good M&E type of thing that can put together all the lessons learned from different. But what happened was there was no M&E as a whole project, but there was an M&E for each project. So, and the lessons from the regular M&E of the respective and M&E of the different UN agencies never talked to each other. So we're repeating the lessons of the lessons that were not learned. <laughs> yeah, that one sounds uh, sounds pretty familiar. I have to say. Yeah, that's also the other thing that keeps me wondering: how far do donors pose on their beneficiaries or partners, what they want to happen in a certain area. For example, now the trend is preventing violent extremism. I'm, I'm sure you know that. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> I call it flavor of the years. Mm. So everyone is into it. I did a mapping for initiatives on preventing violent extremism for UN women. And many of the those who are involved in it do, do not agree on how they look at the phenomenon. They mm. have their own versions. Maybe this is something that we need to take stock of because mm. we might fall into the trap of accessing resources for this just because there's so much money for it because it's a security type of thing for the U.S., for the Western powers, and everyone gets crazy when people talk about violent extremism. So that's what I, I wrote in my report for UN Women, that some of those I interviewed were saying, like, aren't we just following the hegemony of the West? And tomorrow... <laughs> I'm going to attend a forum on religious extremism. <laughs> I am a reactor of the report from yeah. two people. Since last March or April, this will be like my fifth or seventh forum on violent extremism, mm. not including the ones I'm reading through because of a report I have to write. <laughs> Let me close then with yes, one one okay. quick one. So if you were to recommend a book that has been influential for you throughout your career, now not necessarily something technical, but something that you that had meaning for you or that sort of helped you make sense of things. You know what? Starting from I think my first years in college up to maybe now my top book would be The Little Prince. <laughs> good book yeah i mean that part where it's boring to be seeing uniform things mm -hmm. in a planet mm -hmm. composed of the same looking type of thing that's exactly what i want people to realize i mean it's going to be a boring world if we look all the same i was training with some barangay these are uh, community leaders about three weeks ago I was telling them, can you imagine if you live in a world where we all look alike? Mm. You need to have a serial number at the back to find out who your wife is or your husband is. <laughs> <laughs> the diversity is the norm. It's not the exception. Mm. And why are, are we not respecting diversity when it is the way the world has been created? And also along that line, I I read several similar books like Hope for the Flowers and things like very very allegorical small books. Uh, Hope for the Flowers is a story of a butterfly, a mm -hmm. caterpillar, 
Mm-hmm. And he thought of himself as ugly, and he realized when that he needed to become a butterfly and had to climb up a mountain of all caterpillars. Then the gist of the short story is that there's hope of becoming more than what you are in the future. And sometimes to get to the top, you have to step on other people. Isn't it that... Isn't it that when, when some people succeed in the corporate ladder, they have to step on other people's toes to mm-hmm. get to the top? <laughs> and then <laughs> so there's, nothing, like there's nothing up there. <laughs> and nothing up there. That's I realized when I finished everything, I mean, that needed to be finished in my uh, in Hawaii. And then when I came back, I said, wow, I, I only realized that the more I know, I realized that also I know the least of the things I want to know. You know, in the Philippines, we are very particular about titles. Mm-hmm. And that's what I taught my students. Don't be frozen in your academic title. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> no, those are, those are good ones. I think we, need, we read enough 200-page PDF reports. We can yeah, stand to read yeah. the occasional simple allegory, there are, I think. Well, there are, there are good books, but they, they become very technical. Yeah. And that's why I was able... I can memorize, in fact, some of the words that it is only through your heart that one can see, through one's heart that one can see rightly what is essential is invisible to the eye. There you, so you go. see, I yes. can, I can see, I can say that completely. <laughs> also, of course, the, the poem Desiderata, because, I mean, there are lines in that, and it has become my guiding hmm. post, uh, for the way I live, like, do not compare yourself to others. If you want to compare, compare yourself with yourself. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.